Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Hello, Sam. Hello, Andrew. Welcome back to our meeting here in the world of speech. And also we can see each other on Skype. So I want to explain everything I know about Elizabeth Ann Warren, U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, elected in 2013. She gives her home as Cambridge, Massachusetts on her Facebook page. And then if you click on, you know, that you want to follow her Facebook page, you bounce over to her website where the slogan is, let's dream big, fight hard, and win. Her maiden name was Herring, you know, like the fish, H-E-R-R-I-N-G, Elizabeth Ann Herring. She's 70 years old, born on June 22nd, 1949. So then I learned a lot from this article in Cosmopolitan by Eliza Kelly called... Elizabeth Warren's birth chart proves she cares about us so much, you guys. And it's uh, an uh, astrological understanding of Elizabeth Warren. So the sad thing is that... um, Did she make it over? I think that's the cusp of uh, cancer. It's funny because this essay contains a... um, really a stinging denunciation of the concept of a cusp. I think I'll get, I think I'll start with that. Let's get on the same page about one thing, says Eliza Kelly. You cannot, and she spells out cannot in capital letters, you cannot be on the cusp of two astrological signs. Cusp signs are a lie and Mercury is never in retrograde. She was born on the day the sun transitioned from Gemini to Cancer, but she is absolutely 1,000% a Cancer sun. So, yeah, as Sam uh, recognizes, 22nd is around the time that the astrological signs shift in Western astrology. I'm just saying that to make it sound as if I have some knowledge of Eastern astrology, which unfortunately I don't. But... um, Uh, So anyway, she's a Cancer. Cancer is the first water sign of the zodiac, symbolized by a hermit crab. The concept of home is extremely important to these celestial crustaceans because they have their homes on their backs, crabs do. Usually the the water sign that's associated with Cancer is is of a spring bubbling up. Uh You know, like Lake Tier of the Clouds up in the Adirondacks, the headwaters of the Hudson. But that's the the metaphor. For Scorpio, it's deep water. And for... What's the other water sign? Yeah, you got me. Pisces? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Pisces is um, like the surf, like the ocean. Oh, yeah. The the surf of the crashing waves is... um, sense of Pisces and which, you yeah. know uh, there is something of the bubbling spring in Elizabeth Warren it seems to me you know and it's interesting that the cosmopolitan article is headed you know that she cares because that's sort of the 
that's kind of the, the, the hinge, you know, with Elizabeth Warren is, you know, is she, um, you know, I call her Elizabeth Datum Warren. Uh-huh. Yeah, because she's a real, um, coming up was, was very much within a mathematical model of economics. and. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll discuss this later, but she had her big epiphany while doing this scientific study about uh, bankruptcy. I mean, she's one of the few radicals in American history who, you know, sort of studied her way, you know, academically studied her way into uh, a leftist position. Right. Yeah, that was part of some course of study that was set up by a right-wing cat, a guy named Olin, who Mm. um, set up these camps on law and economics with the intention of Mm. uh, backing a a, um, kind of really a a right-wing manifestation of changing laws to benefit, um, benefit corporations and people with money. And then she subverted that experience, I guess, through doing this study that was very practical and involved traveling and talking to people who were in bankruptcy court. That was her the study that she did with a number of people in the mid-80s, I guess. Yeah, pardon me. Yeah, Go ahead. which is kind of leading us into her Taurus moon. But I do want to say parenthetically that I flunked out of Cornell University and there was an Olin Hall there. And there's like an Olin Hall, I think, at a lot of these elite colleges. And, you know, the good thing about going to one of these Ivy League colleges is the names of the halls give you kind of a hint as to the power structure of America. Yeah, there's an Olin Hall, for example, at Bard. Yes, there is. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, I wonder if it's the same, if it's all one Olin. Something tells me it is. The the, the sad thing about... um, Elizabeth Warren's astrological situation is that when she was born in Oklahoma City in 1949, I guess doctors were not, obstetricians weren't thinking that much about the importance of astrology, so her exact birth time is unrecorded. So they just, you know, they can only do the the chart for that day, not for that moment, which, you know, obviously pretty important. You need to, you don't have an ascendant. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, all I have is the Cancer Sun and the Taurus Moon. And then they give the most Cancer Sun quote from Elizabeth Warren is the principal job of the president of the United States is to keep America safe. The way I see this is that the president has failed in his principal duty. I guess he's talking about Trump. He has failed to keep us safer and he has taken us directly to the edge of war. So this is supposedly a Cancerian uh, concern, a concern for the home, for safety, for sort of uh, security. Hmm. And then the Taurus moon indicates that she cares deeply about the physical world, as the first earth sign of the zodiac. Taurus is connected to all tangible resources, including currency and agriculture. There's no question Elizabeth cares deeply about the wealth discrepancy across the country, as well as the ways that climate change will impact both the coastal cities and the rural farming communities. And then they give uh, her most Taurus moon quote, 
all of the wealth is flowing to the top. And year by year by year, those guys have got their lobbyists in Washington ratcheting up to take a little more and take a little more and take a little more. We just can't survive as a democracy if we don't fight back against that. And then the last thing I had to say about her astrology is, I mean, I think the reason, oh yeah, you want to say something, Andrew? Uh, I, I just I just had a question about her um, bankruptcy uh, work. Um, mm-hmm. As I understand it, was it you, Sparrow, or maybe it was you, Sam, who said a few minutes ago that she subverted the traditional bankruptcy practices on some level. And I was reading that um, she tried to um, inject them with um, a sense of uh, egalitarianism. And I I have a a quotation here that speaks to that, but maybe you want to finish your point first, and then we can return to some of the work she did in bankruptcy law. The last thing I wanted to say about her astrology is, I mean, I think part of the reason we're talking about her is I, I maybe suggested her, I don't know, but I have this sort of irrational attraction to Elizabeth Warren. Like I just not physically attracted to her as far as I can tell, but there's something about her that I really like. So I was saying to my wife today, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren has a uh, cancer sun and a Taurus moon. And my wife said, Oh, that's what I have. And I, you know, I don't know that I, I don't think of myself as being, I don't want to admit to be that attracted to my own wife. It's kind of embarrassing, but um, I think it's kind of true. <laughs> and I think there is a lot of my wife. You know, my wife grew up very Republican. She's very hard-headed and practical, logical, but also kind of compassionate. Obsessed with our stupid house. You know, obsessed ah. with keeping it safe and, you know, mowing the lawn. Thank God, because I don't like to do anything. So, I mean, it worked out well for me. I love I shouldn't it. attack my wife on a podcast. When you described your wife as an animal whisperer. When she's as a, a what? Animal? A whisperer that she knows what animals are going. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't you say that? Uh, I kind of, I don't remember saying it, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah, she's an animal. She really is like an animal psychic almost. Like an animal therapist. Yeah. And, she, and, and has no, and she can't read people at all. Like, I'll, we'll, we'll have lunch with someone, and afterwards I'll say, gee, she seems sort of depressed. And my wife say, really? I don't know. And then, like, but if we spend time, like, if we spend a weekend with a cat, she'll say, oh, that cat really liked it when you talked to him. And I'm like, what? You know, she can always, like, know where every animal is emotionally. Does uh, Elizabeth Warren, does she have any animals? Mm. I don't know. She really looks like a dog person to me. She does. She has a bit of the the dog patina. Does she? I, and this is, I, I guess, you know, I, I focus sort of in a very direct way around uh, her conversion and economics and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if she has any kids. Yeah. Oh yeah, she has kids. Okay. Because that was part of because uh, I looked up quotes. Because I'm kind cancer. Of a... Cancer is, you know, also um, having children. And also, um, it's associated with female, uh, with the breasts. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, she, she, uh, you know, had a very conventional life. And uh, let's see, I'm, I think I'm quoting from this New Yorker article. 
Warren started work as a school teacher, and by the end of her first year teaching, when she was 21, she was pregnant. Oh. Somewhere in between diapers and breastfeeding, I hatched the idea of going to school, she writes. Yeah. And, and uh, she starts this book. What is the name of the book? I have to look it up. Um, with the line, uh, I am a mother and a grandmother. I think it might Again, be. Again, that sort of home. Um, oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. She has two children. Is that right? Two children? She, she has a daughter um, and I, I believe a son. Yeah, the oh, son is named Alex. The son she she talks about in this article. And the, the daughter's name is Amelia. Oh, interesting. Oh. And yeah, what about I, uh, grandchildren? Do you see them on your website there? Can you see my website? I can't see it now. Oh, I, I don't, don't want to see. Mention. I don't want to see your website. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting. Her name Warren. Uh, to go back to Robin Hood, Warren is has to do with an enclosure. Yeah. A Warren is um, and is also associated with guarding and protect, protecting. Uh-huh. Like a warden. Yeah. So it's yeah, 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 exactly. And so, you know, that sense of the cancer and the home and keeping the mm. home safe and, um, yeah. you know, I think at some point we talked about the role of the warrior as mm. being, you know, guarding the boundaries. So she has a, a kind of warrior ethic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Warren is also, you know, has that sense of war. War. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sam, what do you and know? It, what do you know about the bankruptcy stuff? And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I got a whole whole sort of scheme oh. that I cooked up around that. But I, I did want to go back to that sense. And I think in both her books, she has the word fight. F-I-G-H-T. That also, of course, has this kind of martial beat to it. I mean, I think part of it, I'm just guessing, is in American politics, you know, I mean, I guess I was afraid this is all we were going to talk about is can a woman be elected president? But I think that the the trope, at least in the kind of op-ed world or whatever it's called, the punditocracy, is, you know, women have to pretend to be very martial and men have to pretend to be a little bit uh, simpatico, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. In order to get elected. So, I mean, maybe all that fighting business is her trying to masculinize herself a little. I mean, not that she's that, what's the word, thought out. Maybe it's not all a political scheme. Who's to say, you know. Yeah, I um, picked up to a lot of my information from an article by Alex Thompson from a website called Politico. I, I don't know what Politico's orientation is, but this was a fairly straight information-laced profile of Elizabeth Warren in no small part based on interviews with people who knew her prior mm -hmm. to her conversion experience um, and then afterwards and so on and so forth. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting place to, um, to come into my sense of who she was or, and she, who she is now. I think I read someone on Twitter saying she was a Republican until she was 47. I don't know if, that, if, if I just made that up. but I, I, She yeah, was until well, 1990. 1990. She's born in 49. 
Yeah. You know, so what is that? Forty-one, maybe. Well, I think it, there was a. She went to George Georgetown University on a debate scholarship. Hmm. She was a she was a, a sort of a champion debater. Hmm. And then she went to Rutgers. She yeah, was in she New got Jersey her law at degree. one point. Yeah. Yeah, she got her law degree from Rutgers and then got dropped into this Olin Camp thing. And that's where I think she met her husband. No, no. Her husband she married in high school. He was her high school sweetheart. Her first husband. Ah, oh, yes. Maybe she has a new husband. Her, her, yeah. her present husband is a law professor at Harvard University. At Harvard. Okay. Yeah, but the Warren, the Warren guy is her high school sweetheart. And he was... Uh, relocated to uh, to New Jersey for IBM, and that's how she ended up going to Rutgers. So she's yeah. from Oklahoma, and she grew up, you know, with this sense. This is what I thought was going on uh, with this whole American Indian issue. Is yeah. you know, I think it's very common for real Oklahomans who have been there for generations to have some sense of a, a Native American heritage. You know, because it was Indian territory. That, I mean, was the name of Oklahoma. So it was there were a lot of Native Americans there. So she had a tradition in her family that she was some part Native American, but she didn't know how much. So she put that on her, uh, I think, her application to Harvard. And it didn't help her get the job. I don't know. This is based on some article I read somewhere a few months ago. Didn't help her get the job, but Harvard used it on their website to boast about their diversity and then finally, and then famously, Trump offered her a million dollars if she could prove that she was a real Native American. She took the DNA test, and she's one twelve hundredth American Indian, I believe. Oh, is it that low? I thought uh, it was that's maybe... my memory. Uh. <laughs> Lower than the average American, actually. Is that right? That's correct. Maybe less less than the average American is Neanderthal. But she, she claimed, you know, in several, in, in several forms, she claimed a Cherokee heritage. Uh-huh. Even if there was some sort of genetic heritage, um, there, there was no cultural heritage in her household, according to several sources that, that I read, um, although she identified her mother as having a Cherokee cultural identity, and that's part of the controversy. I mean, who can prove how much culturally someone is something or or how can who can someone's how can someone say oh yeah she's culturally not at all italian you know like who knows what somebody's doing inside their household you know but there are reports of elizabeth warren um playing um fast and loose with apocryphal narratives and where do you guys stand on that i mean there, there have been a number of um aspects of her narrative that have been called into some question. Yes, the intimation is that um, she's reinvented herself in some calculated ways for the purposes of um, being a successful politician who resonates with people. I know her, her brothers, according to the Associated Press, have disputed some of her claims about the poverty or living at the jagged edge of the middle class that she... Uh, uh -huh has um, um, uh, described you know, regarding her uh, her upbringing. Right, because her father famously had a heart attack, I think, when she was 12. And then her mother had to work. I think I, I was just reading. She had to work the phones, not just work at Sears, work the telephones at Sears, which sounds like one of the lowest jobs at Sears. 
just to keep the family going. But I must say, you know, the only qualm that I personally have is, you know, I saw a photograph on the Internet of Elizabeth Warren's childhood home, and it is big. You know, it's a big upper middle class house. It's it's not doesn't look like the jagged edge of the middle class. Yeah, here's something that I found um, quoted by the, uh, the the Associated Press along those lines. And I, I don't know whether to believe it or not, but I'll, I'll just read it aloud. Interviews with Warren's childhood friends and documents reviewed by the Associated Press add new texture to what the candidate <laughs> describes as her family's time, quote, on the ragged edge of the middle class, end quote. They also reveal that the worst of times for her family were relatively brief. By age 16, Warren was driving a two-door British Roadster. <laughs> oh, nice. Her father had gone back to work, and her mother was talking about quitting the job that had once been necessary to keep a roof over their heads. Huh. So, so there's a sort of a shadow over Elizabeth Warren that she's, say, phony or something like that. But I'm to not be honest, I mean, the one thing I would say is, as we know... Politics astrologically, <laughs> um, which also, you know, is the house of Leo, the lion, you know, the house, yeah. It also rules theater. So there is mm -hmm. to politics a certain amount of acting, you know, of playing a role. So, I mean, the only thing that comes to my mind is that for, for better or worse, for Elizabeth Warren, I mean, I was going to say the same thing that Sam's saying. I mean, it happens that I, I don't really know politicians, but I did once meet Bill Clinton. Anyway, I shook his hand on East 86th Street when he was running for president the first time. And I saw him talk to people like some woman came up to him and asked him like a difficult question about uh, public housing in New York City. And he gave a long you know, uh, detailed answer to her. And then she asked something else that made him realize that she, that this woman was kind of a Republican in sheep's clothing, just trying to trap him with a, with a sort of, uh, trick question. And uh -huh. he just turned on his heels and left. And not that that was so horrible, but his vibe, he was like one of the weirdest people I ever met. Just like he had like a <laughs> very slight, the slightest amount of charisma you can have and still have charisma. And he was just like an empty vacancy. He was like a vacuum cleaner, just like an empty being who like sucks the life out of other people by shaking their hands and going around. This is what he does all the time. You know, like he's a just a weird person. Yeah, yeah, like that. I, I used to work in movies, you know, I was a utility sound technician. I was a cable person, IOTC Local 695. <laughs> and so I'd work on movies. And there was this one movie I worked on with Tom Selleck. <laughs> yeah. And I had a, a distinct, very concrete impression and sort of an intuition that his head you know, the actual <laughs> architecture of his, of his, like, what was behind his face was this empty, was empty, was this kind of cavern huh. and that he was in this, in this empty space, huh. you know, waiting to be activated, you know, oh, and that he was uh -huh. a purely reactive oh. phenomena. Yeah, it was sort of, I felt bad for him when he was sitting alone in his chair, <laughs> you know, without anybody around. He just seemed... Uh, 
like a marionette, you know, without uh-huh. any strings, you know, without any tensions. Which is a real actor. Yeah. Maybe he's a, maybe he's a real actor. So you guys think that if there is some degree of um, the the apocryphal in Elizabeth Warren's to Elizabeth Warren's personal narrative, that that really that doesn't concern you. You're more focused on her policy positions because there is this element of the theatrical in American public life when it comes to politicians' personal narratives. You know what I wanted to say, which I started to say, and then got into a parenthetical. Uh, you know, uh, sideline is that the weird thing is that in this race is this guy, Bernie Sanders, who seems to be like a exception to the rule of what a politician is. I mean, he seems absolutely to be telling the truth about everything. But I've been like lying in bed thinking about this today. And basically, the reason that happened is because the hippies sort of quietly took over Vermont, you know, Enough hippies moved to Vermont in 1971, including Bernie Sanders, that they created this weird enclave where you could thrive for decades, be a senator who's not even in any political party. And, you know, you don't there's no real problems in Vermont. There's nothing to really do there. And you can have these perfect politics and people just keep electing you generation after generation. So Bernie never had to be a scumbag to be a politician. He just happened to be exempt from that. So he may be, you know, a case of a senator, of a politician who's running for president, not just a local politician, who doesn't lie. That's what Noam Chomsky has said as well about Bernie Sanders. What about him? Oh, about this socialist enclave that he lives in? No, just that he 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 he's a rare exception to the uh, the lying politician that there you know uh, there's truth there there's authenticity. Yeah, hmm. I mean I think the thing that I saw Bernie I was I hate to boast but I was in the Miami Book Fair a few years ago, and uh, when Bernie was in the Miami Book Fair. Oh really? You know, yeah, through some friend of mine I got like I was on the like weirdo panel. You know, there was a guy named Morris Stegosaurus. It was me, Morris Stegosaurus, and this woman who was like a uh, like a goth witch. And there was one other guy, and we were like the weirdos. And we had a pretty big uh, crowd between. I think all the the goth witches all came from Miami. And then when that was done, I went to see Bernie speak to this huge auditorium full of enthusiastic young people, and it was amazing. But what Bernie does, you know, that's almost, I think he's a great politician. He is a politician. He doesn't exactly lie. But the thing that he does is he sort of sculpts the truth in such a way that it's very appealing. Like he's got that Jewish quality of like, I'm going to sell you this thing and you're going to want to buy it. He's, he wants to make it appealing to you. He wants to tell you as the person sitting in that seat what, He's going to give you and what he doesn't do, you know, because the really the real left, like 90 percent of the real left is all this complete nonsense about, oh, white males are so privileged and trans people are the same as women. And, you know, it's like all this like political correctness and zero of that is in Bernie. Like Bernie leaves all that culture war stuff a hundred percent out. He never makes anybody feel bad for being white. He, he's completely in favor of like 
every working person, black, white, brown, anybody. So he has, and nobody notices, the kids love him, even though the kids believe in all this nonsensical microaggression that he never talks about. They just assume that he's with them. So he tells us, he tells the truth, but he tells the truth in a very kind of persuasive way. Well, I, I sense, you know, with Warren that she she may have sort of an, I think, somewhat kind of dorky sense of trying <laughs> to position herself relative to like having a Native American pedigree or this and that, or that mm. she comes from hard scrabble, you know, uh, working class background, but it's kind of a little bit shown up by, you know, like pictures of her house, you know, big rambly house and the roadster. But um, no, I think that she's fairly sincere. And I and I, um, I I do want to sort of talk about some of the ways in which I think that may be true, you know, that's based on the record, you know, her actual what she's done in her life. And I, and I guess I would go back to, you know, she was a she was a real Republican, but she was principally a Republican that was that came out of an academic background and out of the, you know, privilege of attending this law and economy camp. And she got her law degree with a real basis in economics. You know, this camp, I guess, was called Law and Economics. And she wrote this paper in 1980, my understanding uh, is that this paper was on utilities, on utility companies. Oh. And she argued that utility companies should be able to raise rates at will, according to their own economic model, and that the consumer issues of pernicious billing and of charging too much and so on and so forth were, were not relevant to producing the energy that gets to people's homes to keep uh, America running. And that, in fact, her 1980 paper had like an enormous effect. And it's one of the most cited uh, papers in relation to law cases, mm. you know, with utility companies. I guess it was a guy named uh, Jay Westbrook. Well, let me let me let me back up and and say, you know, what is economics? Mm. Right. What is economics? It is euphemistically called the dismal science. <laughs> but you know, there was no economics departments until 19, in the early 1900s. I think the first one was in Manchester, University of Manchester. And it formally was called political economy. There was no department of economics. It, that The study of money was called political economy. And then, you know, slowly through uh, the uh, University of Cambridge, through Marshall's uh, Principles of Economics in 1890, you began to have this, the creation of a department of economics and of economic science. But you need to understand that 
economics is not a science, that -hmm. there is no way to apply experimental conditions Mm. to national economies in order to make predictive models, that it's that it's not a science. Right. A science requires experiments and you can't have experiments in economics. That's your point, right? Yeah, very much. It can't be rigorously tested. And also that economics, the economics model is based on scarcity. Hmm. It was influenced by Malthus, uh, you know, and this sort of Malthusian idea that um, populations would continue to increase exponentially and that that there aren't enough resources to support a population, as opposed to a model of abundance and of um, things like, uh, do you know the, do you know what max cubed is? No. No. Max cubed is um, is made up of three things: the maximum amount of good or benefit to the maximum amount of people. Hmm. to the maximum extent of the time and that that there that there are other uh, other ways of perceiving economics that are based on egalitarianism of the distribution of resources in a in as fair a way as possible but models of scarcity always come down to hoarding come Hmm. down to you know, the rich accumulate money to protect them from its result. So the mm-hmm. accumulation of money results in scarcity, results in the emergence of poor people, of hard up people. And then people who have a lot of money say, oh, I don't want to be poor. And so the rich accumulate money in order to, what did I say? <laughs> the rich accumulate money in order to protect them from its result, the result of the accumulation of money. It's like a vicious cycle, you're kind of saying, because the more the rich accumulate money to protect themselves, the more poor people they are, which makes more uh, panic in the minds of the rich, so they have to accumulate more money. Yeah, that's sort of been my experience, yeah. Ethic of hoarding has been called the economics of extraction. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was a statement that um, that Elizabeth Warren made uh, that's quoted, and, I, and I'll um, read that. I was never very political. So she's talking about her experience in the early 80s. I was never very political. I just never thought much about the political end. And that's a super interesting statement because... <laughs> Economics was called political economy. It hmm. was based on the wealth of nations, you know, Adam Smith nations, uh, you know, and really, you know, embedded in that term with the wealth of nations, the wealth of the state of being born, you know, a nation, the cognate is natus is to be born. Huh. The nature of nature is, is uh, fecundity, is a giving birth. Hmm. Um, you know, which is the opposite of a scarcity model. It's one of um, of abundance. Hmm. So it's interesting that she 
negated the sort of political in these in the in her 1980s. And so she was very much part of the kind of mathematical model of economics. Does that make sense? It does. And that um, makes sense in terms of um, some of the comments that she has made on the record about the value of the bankruptcy process. And I have a quotation here. Unfortunately, I, I, I didn't record where this quotation comes from, but I'll read what I have. Ms. Warren wrote that bankruptcy, quote, inevitably pits sympathetic interests against each other, current victims against future victims, employees against retirees, and small suppliers against customers who didn't get what they were promised. The challenge is balancing all of these interests in the fairest way possible. This is a Rawlsian, you know, a, a John Rawlsian, a theory of justice approach to bankruptcy law, the value of the bankruptcy process, which aims to engage in restributive justice, to restrib, re, redistribute. Well, what happens if you go bankrupt? All of your debt is cleared. How, though, would um, consumers be compensated? I don't really understand it, but I do know that there's a you know, a, a desire to be as fair as possible and dis- redistribute the wealth that's present in her work on, uh, on bankruptcy. Well, I know that one of the things that she really railed against was President Clinton's advocacy and passage of, I think it's called the Credit Modernization Act or something like that, hmm. that restricted the capacity to, to declare bankruptcy. Um, You know, that, for example, student debt is now you can't be uh, forgiven for student debt. It hangs with you for your whole life. And it's far more difficult to evade credit debt and things like that. Um, But that was actually one of the signal things that um, brought her into the political theater, as it were. Well, there's sort of two Elizabeth Warrens, you know, there's the Elizabeth Warren before she confronted this bankruptcy issue before she did this study, as I recall, where she went around. Apparently, no one had ever sort of systematically studied bankruptcy before her. And she went like from town to town looking at the records of the courts, reading the court records, you know, the way you would read the, you know, uh, genealogical records of your family. And she went in with this kind of what Sam was talking about this. I mean, I don't think Sam said this explicitly, but she was the sort of person who believed in the market. She believed that the market was reasonable and and had its own logic. Shouldn't that's why it shouldn't be. That's why utilities companies should not be regulated by the government because the market has its own wisdom. And the government will just ruin it by by interfering. And that the people who become bankrupt are obviously people who are not responsible. They're not uh, uh, sensible people. They don't save money. They spend money. They waste money. They're they're, uh, kind of people that society doesn't really uh, need. Yeah, my my understanding is that she went into that study with certain assumptions about the nature of bankruptcies, which was that 
she would be confronting a bunch of freeloaders and a bunch of people trying to game the system. Mm. And then she discovered that it was completely the other way around, that the system was um, creating circumstances in which people would, you know, take on debt to survive and then be unable to, you know, meet the pernicious rates of interest or whatever the circumstances were. I mean, one of the things going back to this camp that she went to, the law and economics camp, this guy named James, James Pearson, who I guess ran it for this guy, John Olin, a quote is economic analysis which is what Elizabeth Warren was interested in as she came out of her law and economics, how do you say, thesis or, you know, interest. Economic analysis tends to have conservatizing effects. <laughs> and again, this is, a, this is the, um, you know, I learned from a, an ex-girlfriend of mine, Jocelyn Sadenberg, who, um, you know, subsequently she was interested in many things, but she became a poet, or she always was. One of the things I learned from her is that when you, she, she worked for a period of time in New York when there were still sweatshops down in, um, down in uh, the Lower East Side or, you know, that sort of Orchard Street. Oh, yeah. Um, uh-huh. You know, there's places down below Canal Street. You know, she worked as a union organizer, and she said that organization from above rarely works. That when you impose systems, you know, as these economic models are often imposed from above, it rarely works out. And that if you want to do union organizing, it has to be grassroots. It has to come up from the people Mm. and then, you know, emerges more organically. But Warren came out of a non-organic model of imposing a kind of mathematical schema and then, you know, trying to um, see how it juxtaposed with actual experience. But it was in this, I guess, 1980s and the mid 80s that she started to do direct research with bankruptcy, bankruptcy, bankrupt, corrupt. (laughs) bankrupt you know it sort of has this um agent orange flavor to it or the krupp the krupps were like uh german uh, munitions makers right the krupps k-r-u-p-p-s yeah 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 they were munitions and then they went into coffee makers (laughs) yeah it was a yeah 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 and that um and that through doing that research which was very unusual to do research-based economics, she realized that the people were being betrayed by the system and that one of her colleagues at that time said that she, quote, was shocked, or or maybe, yeah, I think she she said that she was shocked at a deep down level, which I think is poetic. (laughs) <laughs> she was shocked at some like very deep level and that and that she experienced, you know, it again, using a sort of mathematical term, a kind of 180 degree shift, a chiasma. Mm-hmm. You know, she had a reversal 
out of that experience. Which is like uh, in a Greek uh, tragedy, like what Oedipus has, you know, after he's blinded. You know, it's it's the, uh, what do you call that? Uh, yeah. uh, metanoia. Yeah, metanoia. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, not the reversal, unfortunately. The catharsis, isn't that the word? Or the, yeah, the, the catharsis. The catharsis, where like the person recognizes, sort of takes responsibility, I think, for like the tragedy of their life, like recognizes... You know, I killed my father. I slept with my mother. I have to deal with this. I can't just blame other people for it. It's really me. I have to take it on. And then they have some kind of transformation. And then the audience has a transformation, which I think, you know, has happened to some of the uh, people that follow Elizabeth Warren. Through her catharsis, they've had a catharsis. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things, though is a guy named Jay Westbrook, with whom she, I guess, worked, um, you know, one of her colleagues, maybe at University of Austin, said that Warren realized that the capitalist machine is out of line. (laughs) That's the phrase that he used. But I think one of the important things to remember about Elizabeth Warren is that she remains a capitalist. Yes. Yeah. She remains a capitalist and that the the act that she um, wrote and propagated, I guess, um, you know, not so many years ago is called the Accountable Capitalism Act. (laughs) And that, you know, that in part was also basis of the uh, CFPC, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is her greatest work. Right. Mm -hmm, Right. Yeah. So that she didn't. So she remains a capitalist, and I think it's important in terms of theory to understand that capitalism, as a pure system, has never existed, (laughs) just as communism has never uh, existed. You know what we have in the United States is a socialist capitalist system, just as in Russia at the height of um, you know the Russian experiment. You know, they had a capitalist socialism uh, structure. But the Mm. two, you know, the the political economy is a far more appropriate term for what we call economic science. Yeah. You can't divorce it. The wealth of nations, it's not the wealth of corporations. It's not the wealth of individuals. It's the wealth of natus, the wealth of nations, the wealth of production. Yeah, I want to read this uh, quote from her. I think this is from one of her books. Also, I don't know where it's from. Uh, It's from Goodreads. She says, starting in 1792 with George Washington, there were financial crises every 10 to 15 years. This is the point that you're making, Sam, about the uh, unpureness of capitalism. Panics, bank runs, credit freezes, crashes, depressions. People lost their farms. Families were wiped out. This went on for more than 100 years until the Great Depression, when Oklahoma turned to dust. We can do better than this, Americans said. We don't need to go back to the boom and bust cycle. The Great Depression produced three regulations. The FDIC, your bank deposits were safe. Glass-Steagall, banks couldn't go crazy with your money. The SEC, stock markets would be tightly controlled. 
For 50 years, these rules kept America from having another financial crisis. Not one panic or meltdown or freeze. They gave Americans security and prosperity. Banking was dull. The country produced the greatest middle class the world had ever seen. So I think this, you know, is kind of her philosophy. The, uh, what's the word, you know, restraining of the worst impulses of capitalism. You know, not that right. she wants to abolish capitalism, but that she wants to regulate it. Right. Yeah, right on. And she yeah, doesn't say the- that, uh, I think it was uh, Clinton who removed uh, some of these regulations, thus leading the way to the financial meltdown of 2008. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Financial Modernization Act, yeah, which kind of gutted Glass-Steagall. The one thing she also, yeah, go ahead, Andrew. This quick question. Um, did, I know she she's worth quite a bit of money. According to Forbes, um, her estimated worth is about $12 million. Huh. Um, and any sense of... Um, where that where that money comes from i know she's been a university professor most of her life a highly paid one but still i guess from uh, books from her books like maybe she's speaking uh, money you know fees for sp- i don't I have no idea well, it's more than i thought her university pays probably like 200 250 i mean 250 grand mm. that's a high you know, for a professor, probably the best you can do unless you go into the administration, right? Yeah, in 1996, mm-hmm. the year after she was hired at Harvard, she was the highest paid member of the faculty who did, really? not, yes, yeah. who did not have an administrative position, a non-dean position, at that uh-huh. point, making um, somewhere around uh, $180,000 uh-huh. a year. Uh-huh. That was also the year that she became a Democrat. <laughs> that was in 96, I think, that and she registered as a Democrat. Yeah. She, uh, she was hired by Harvard in 1995. Yeah. One of the things that sort of relates to her shift, and I'm having a hard time feeling that 180 thing, you know, with everything that we're saying. But one of the things she said was, I, and, and related to her experience in the 80s prior to going into, um, a deeper understanding of the exigencies of bankruptcy. Hmm. She wrote, uh, I was willing to turn down the path with these guys. And I guess she's relating to these econ- economists and plutocrats with these guys until I discovered there was nothing solid under their feet. Hmm. Forever after, I became inductive instead of deductive. (laughs) I I thought that was an interesting, this antithesis of induction versus deduction. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would would be interesting in relative to a poetics, actually. You know, having an inductive versus a deductive poetics. Mm. Yeah, maybe that's what I hate about... um... T.S. Eliot, that he has a deductive poetics. You know, he seems to have some kind of great Christian wisdom, at first maybe great agnostic wisdom, later great Christian Christian wisdom, that he kind of 
you know, imprints onto his experience rather than the other way around, rather than a person like like William Carlos Williams, who just kind of looked down the street, sees a dog limping, and he thinks about that for a while. He starts with his experience, not with his great, uh, you know, understanding of the crucifixion. <laughs> right. Of life, his theology. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of a lead, leading in. You know, ducare means to lead. Leading in as opposed to leading from. Hmm. But at I the, mean, I at love the, back the idea. Of it all is like f- leading, f- leading. You know, what the f- are you leading? You know, why do we lead? Why do we have this whole emphasis on leading anybody? You know, let's leave. Let's leave each other alone. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like uh, economics? Yeah, just Ducare, you know, the idea of induction, deduction, education, uh, you know, all of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, she is an educator yeah. or was. Now she's a senator. I don't think she's still a she's not still a professor, right? She's not a part time Harvard professor. I don't think. I don't think so. Think so. Think yeah. Probably. So, 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 Andrew, are you suggesting I mean, I'm happy with you asking these like quizzical, you know, uh, paradoxical questions about Elizabeth Warren. I mean, are you suggesting that you have suspicions about her yourself? I, I like much of what she stands for, and I think I would support her. I prefer Bernie Sanders. I would love to see them on the same ticket. Um, but I guess she hasn't completely won me over. Mm. Just as you can't entirely explain your attraction to her, I can't <laughs> really explain why it is she hasn't won me over. Mm. I, I think I'm 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 upset about the uh, the allegation, um, not not to go down this rabbit hole, but the allegation that uh, uh, that Bernie Sanders told her that a woman could not be elected president. I don't believe that. It seemed like uh, somewhat manufactured, um, huh. to, to my ear at least. Huh. Or it could have been, you know, an unguarded moment. I think that's all. That's just garbage. That's just sort of thing that's thrown out at the edges of things to uh, occupy people. That's, you know, I think it's a non-issue. But Elizabeth Warren did say it. I mean, she brought it up. No one else but her brought it up. Right. So why did she bring it up? I mean, yeah, it, it could be. Yeah, troubling. that was. Yeah, that was funny. That she should have left that alone. That was stupid. But the one thing I wanted, I, the one thing I would say out of that, is that my broad take is has to do with the failed white man. You know, white guys have kind of had the reins on this world for yeah since recorded history. I would say yeah, hand at least since people started writing things down, which is about 5,000 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be my that would be my take. But my take is that, you know, the failed white man, we f***ed it up. You know, we're at the edge of the Anthropocene. We're at the edge, of, you know, at the edge of breaking the egg open and, you know, and of the collapse of this planetary system. So I think, you know, that we've, we've f***ed it up. And that women should take it over at this point. My feeling is that we need, and preferably a black woman, <laughs> would be like the perfect president at this point in our, in you know, in history. Yeah, well, I, I don't disagree. 
I mean, I, I, Perfect. I've just been Perfect. watching this. I forget. I'm not sure I can remember his name. This comedian in, uh, in England who's totally against uh, the woke culture. I think his name is something like Andrew Lloyd, and uh, and he's been a little bit brainwashing me about this way of thinking where everything is identity based. You know, like obviously it's not that any black woman. When we say we want a black woman president, we don't mean just like go out on the street, pick the first black woman you see, and like, yes, you should be our leader. I mean, That's what Sam if, is saying. What? I, I kind of am saying that. Well, maybe, <laughs> and maybe I'm agreeing with it, come to think of it. But I'm not sure it's a good idea. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure you can just go there. I'm sure there are white men who are maybe would make better presidents than certain black women. It's not a, a uniform. It's not like it's not like different species, you know. It's not like the difference between a rhinoceros and a mollusk. You know, it's not like every black person is there. We're all one species. And, and in a no, sense, no, this race no, I, and gender even are sort of an illusion, you know. Definitely, yeah. But I'm just sort of making a, a very <laughs> broad statement is that the white man has failed. Yeah. And I think we need to collectively acknowledge that, you know, that we've <clears> failed <throat> and that we need to... Um, we need a drastic, immediate, and radical change. And, um, you know, and I, and I think Agent Orange is that is mm. so exemplary of the failed white man. Yeah, I know. He and, proves, in a way, that the patriarchy is dead. That's what I've been saying. Who was mm-hmm. he? Orange. That's the president of the United States. Oh, I didn't realize he was called that. I thought you were referring to uh, weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> and I guess you are. Or some kind of like crazy patriarchal rage and greed that's like kind of unstoppable. How about what, what do you make of Obama? Self-destructive. There was rage. A self-destructive. I, I believe that there's a strong self-destructive uh, verve that's running through the nature of our collective like political experience at this juncture, for sure. Yeah. Uh, what, what about, you know, Obama, for example, there was a great deal of excitement that mm. we, that certainly in my heart and in the heart of many people in our country and in the world that we had elected first African-American mm-hmm. to be president. But in, in many respects, he was, um, I would say, just paraphrasing Cornell West, the, the, <laughs> uh, the Wall Street president and the drone president, mm. not the um, social radical um, that we may have hoped for. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- d- this just harkens back to your point, Sparrow, about um, just the, the character of someone. It, it's not so much the demographic identity. Oh, I see what you mean. It's my it's my personal take is that Barack Obama, about less than six months into his presidency, Ooh. realized that there was a target on his back. <laughs> and I think somebody somebody said, hey, you know, Barack, if you keep moving in this direction, um, you know, which sort of centered around two issues. One is the aggressive prosecution of the prior uh, administration, mm-hmm. remembering that we became a country that officially sanctioned torture, you know, just that single thing. I thought he did an amazing job, given the 
you know, the play in the game as he had it, you know, play in the hand, he the poker hand he was dealt. He but I, got Obamacare and it's still there. The Republicans tried 46 times to destroy it and they failed. I mean, yeah, I think no, that I, is a I, solid I, achievement of his. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. But I think at some point he understood that he was in mortal danger, that he would be <laughs> assassinated. I mean, one thing that I wanted to also mention, if I may, that I think is relevant is the thesis of William Irwin Thompson. Um, I don't know, Andrew, if you remember William Irwin Thompson, you may, Sparrow. He wrote, uh, for example, The Edge of History, and he was kind of like a public intellectual, like your Cornell West or, you know, like Emerson, etc. And what, one insight that William Irwin Thompson had is, is in relation to the presidency. And what he said is that if you want to know what a president is going to do in, you know, once they're elected, what you need to do is identify the reverse of that for, <laughs> which, they, that for which they campaigned, the basis for, of their campaign you look at it, examine it carefully, and you try to determine what the opposite of that would be, and mm. that's what you're going to get. Oh, that's, and he applied this to, to Ronald Reagan, for example. Um, Ronald Reagan, I believe one of his uh, shticks was um, coming back to... Morning in um, America. Morning, yeah, it was morning in America, and this idea of, uh, of a kind of coming back to simple American virtues and also a kind of American isolationism. Hmm. But that Ronald Reagan actually presided over the uh, planetization of the economy, that it was hmm. in the 80s, you know, we'd gone off the gold standard and we were actually emerging not in terms of the wealth of nations, but more the uh, a world economy in which, you know, in which he rose out of the 80s, the the um, the beginnings of Chimerica, for example, <laughs> you know, this the China and the American economies oh, are intertwined, completely intertwined. And so it'd be interesting to 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 look at Elizabeth Warren and what would be the opposite of that, mm. which she is. You know, her plank, what's the opposite of that which she's advocating? Uh, more polarization of wealth would be part of it. And wars, lots of wars. And, and, and only get, not doing much to curb the pharmaceutical lobby. Making that, Facebook stronger. I think that's one of her most radical uh, positions. Is she wants to uh, break up Facebook. She wants to make them... Uh, uh, you know, give up uh, Instagram, I think. <laughs> She's going to break apart Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, there was, on, you know, because I'm a Twitter addict, like the recently, maybe three weeks ago, there was a, there was a, like a, what do you call, trend on Twitter that said probably the most radical opinion of Elizabeth Warren. She had an interview with Vogue or somebody like that. And she's, she said that she never, ever washes her face, like ever. She just puts on this Pond's cream every night. And then, uh, you know, because her face is very unlined for someone who's 70. And uh, 
she just puts on the cream at night and then wipes it off in the morning, I guess. And that, uh, and, and, you know, people were like, is that true? Are there people that never, ever wash their face? And I started to think about it. And I think I never wash my face now that I think of it. You have very nice skin too. I know. Yeah. yeah. People say to me once in a while, yeah, you have, you nice have amazing. Alan Ginsberg said to me, you have very nice skin. And then he said, are you a vegetarian? I said, yeah. He said, that's why. And I wasn't even that old then, but he, you know, he was very involved in staring at the skin of young poets. <laughs> I know he, he gazed at the skin of Sam Truitt in Washington, D.C. Oh, is that right? Right, Sam? Yeah, I went to some kind of thing. Uh, it was at um, a guy named Ted Fields. He was a dentist. <laughs> and I was, I was kind of... Uh, a little bit romantically involved with his daughter <laughs> and Alexandra. And um, so I was invited to this, this thing for Lucian, Luci, Lucian Carr. Yeah. Not Caleb Carr. Caleb Carr, I think is his son. He, he's yeah, a novelist. Caleb Carr yeah. That book, The Alienist, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was Lucian Carr and it was Lucian Carr was retiring or something from the AP. And so I went to this cocktail party and um, but Lucian Carr was interesting because he had stabbed somebody. Yeah. yeah, he killed somebody. He killed somebody who I think was homosexually approaching him on the Upper West Side, like at Riverside Park. I think. Riverside Park. Yeah. Like and in he the went 50s. to jail. And I and I always felt like that was a catalytic event within the sort of beat scene is yeah, that suddenly point. one of their own was going to prison, you know, for killing somebody like that really shocked them. At any rate, I was at this party. Yeah. And and, uh, and Alan was there and we were talking and he said, hey, Sam, hey, what are you doing later? I've got a hotel. <laughs> Do you want to, you know, come back to the hotel yes. with me? And, it, and what happened? It was great. I said, no, I'm not into that. No, it's oh, not. yeah. And he was mistake. cool with that. He was like, yeah, I guess that uh, Allen Ginsberg, he was of the school of, if you don't ask, you know, you're never going to get a response, you know? Yeah, ask and, you know, see what happens. You know, you're probably going to score like one out of 20, one out of, you know, you're going to score at some point, I guess. I had a friend like that who would go to parties and ask every woman to sleep with him. And uh, it was surprisingly large percentage would. <laughs> uh, yeah. You only really need one. I mean, depending on your taste, you know. Yeah. Ginsburg went in uh, 76 at the Naropa Institute. I was walking around without a shirt one day and he was kind of gently caressing my chest. And I think it's a little bit creeped me out. And I, but I was very innocent, like I still am, and I don't think I quite realized that it was a specific sexual come on. How would uh -huh. you feel if it was Elizabeth Warren doing the caressing? <laughs> I think I'd probably feel pretty good about it, come to think of it. <laughs> I mean, I like Elizabeth Warren's kind of school marm patina, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I love the way she dresses. It's like she oh. dresses very Republican in these pantsuits. They're always blue. It just it's maybe sometimes bright red. I must admit yeah. that uh, as a she's a, a master rhetorician, I think that her answers are very intelligent and crisp. And I've been impressed with her performance in the various debates and in mm. context. She she um very thoughtful and articulate. 
Yeah. And I think I want to read some of her fame. I think the reason I first knew about her is there was a viral video of hers from 2011. I mean, it's kind of her most famous quote, and uh, some of it is in this New Yorker article. She says, there is nobody in this country who got rich on his own. Nobody. You built a factory out there, good for you. But I want to be clear. You moved your goods to market on the roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a big hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along. And, you know, I just thought when I saw her say that in somebody's house in Massachusetts, I think when she was running for Senate, you know, I just thought like, wow, this is really the socialist vision kind of presented in this wonderfully simple, American, clear, compelling and, you know, pretty articulate manner. Um, Warren Buffett would, uh, you know, would second that. Warren, who's got the same name as her. Just in a different place. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's favorite uncle, billionaire. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, one thing we need to keep in mind is that the, to a certain extent, a, a wholehearted free market attitude forgets that corporations on the whole are sociopathic structures. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. I, I think maybe I, I, I was a little too distracted by the um, the fictionalization of her personal narrative and her personal wealth. I, to answer your question from earlier, Sparrow, I think those, I haven't quite resolved those two things. I know that the, uh, the home she lives in, in Cambridge, which is a beautiful Victorian home, I know which one it is, is um, listed at $3 million. Hmm. And she owns this uh, million-dollar condo in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I guess, based upon the quotation that you just read, the, 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 that she, she, she owns that and she feels that she's worked hard and you know, done well and there's no problem with that, as long as she's willing to give back and, and um, get behind policies that redistribute uh, the, the, the hoarding of wealth in America. Um, do you are you are you guys um, flummoxed by the uh, the personal wealth or not so much? I don't care one way or the other about it, really. I sense that you yeah. How about you, Sam? Yeah, I mean, twelve million is a is a big chunk of change, and I'd be interested in knowing how she piled it up. Yeah, I, actually, I, I think that is. Uh, is that um, a fair question? Yeah, it's a fair question. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm not interested in it. I mean, I'm curious about everything. Yeah, I'm, I would like to know the story about her. But I, I just don't, you know, the way I see capitalism is something, I mean, because, I mean, I get, it's not clear to people listening to this, but I mean, I live on so little money and I'm, you know, so I'm not, I was just like trying to like articulate this the other day. I'm not like off the grid, but I'm like at the edge of the grid where it starts to kind of like unravel, you know, like where like it's, it becomes more like a kind of tangle of spaghetti, the grid. But, uh, you know, I mean, I live on like, you know, an amazingly small amount of money and I've spent my life, whatever, 
you know, trying to destroy capitalism by never spending any money. And uh, it hasn't really worked. And, uh, you know, my feeling is I'm a hypocrite like everyone. You know, everyone, I suppose everyone, every leftist, I suppose right wing people are not hypocrites, but they're probably hypocrites in some other way. But anyway, like, uh, you know, we all live in this system. The system is unjust, in my opinion. And we all are somewhere in it. We all have to survive. Those of us that have decided we're going to survive, we all make some sort of uh, devil's bargain with it, you know. And, uh, you know, exactly how that bargain plays out, it's interesting, but I don't think it validates or invalidates us, you know. You know, I don't, I don't think like a person I would think about this because, you know, I have this person I know who's a mergers and acquisition investment banker. You know, he's done things that I think are horrible. But if he didn't do them, someone else would do them. So, like, how would it help if he didn't do them and his family starved? You know, like, how exactly is that so much more ethical? The, the important thing is trying to change the system, I think. If you're interested in changing the system, the important thing is not living an exemplary life. You know, everybody has their, you know, their own personal, uh, you know, decision they made about how much money they want and how what they're willing to do to get it. <laughs> As my father used to say, uh, there's no uh, virgins in whorehouses. <laughs> and he's an old Marxist, you know. I mean, I suppose there is a point where it becomes a blatant, horrible hypocrisy. But I think this is one of the reasons that people like Trump, you know, can can flourish is because he's he's like very proud of being a bad person and he's very consistently bad. So people feel that he's very honest, you know, where they find, you know, Al Gore does keeps two lights on in his house. And he's like, oh, that guy's a big fraud. You know, it's it's stupid, you know, <laughs> I love coming to these kind of deep silences with you guys <laughs> as we're sort of like saying, huh, what else should we say? Well, you know, and we, I don't know. I, um, I've sort of, I've, I have this whole kind of other thing that brings in Leibniz and things like that. Huh? And I'm not sure. And also Emerson, hmm. you know, the infinitude of the thinking person and, I mean, that in some ways is sort of touches on what you were just saying, uh, Sparrow. I mean, I, I consider Sparrow to be a, an incredibly wealthy guy. I don't oh, know. Thanks. Can yeah. Elizabeth, can she Can she get us there? I don't know. I, I feel stronger about Elizabeth Warren than I do about Bernie Sanders, frankly. Is that right? I'm under, I mean, I like Bernie, but I'm open to Elizabeth Warren, personally. That's you know, I read some weird op-ed piece in The Times that said, Elizabeth Warren is the compromise candidate because in the polls that show who is the candidate, if you ask Democrats, who's the candidate you can't stand, she gets the lowest rating. Huh. She has an 11% rating among mm -hmm. Democrats. Whereas, you know, the kind of the centrists don't like Bernie, the Bernie people don't want to, you know, uh, settle for Buttigieg. So she could be the one that everyone coalesces around if if Bernie stalls after the first two uh, contests, first two primaries. I can see that. I want to thank you, too. I thought that the, even if there were um, distortions of the truth or some fuzzy research, uh, mostly on my end, I thought the, 
the conversation that we had about Elizabeth Warren was more enlightening than anything I've heard from any pundit huh. or, or, or read online. I, I thought it was it was I thought it was a good conversation. Yeah. And, and who knew that we could do that? It's the first time we really tried to r- talk about something. I started to say write about, you know, something uh, kind of uh, topical, you know, not just some eternal matter of uh, <laughs> of the universe like silence or walking. Are you going to dedicate it to anyone, uh, Andrew? Is not your job as our theologian? Sure, I'll, I'll dedicate this conversation to Jill. To Leibniz. What about dedicating it to Leibniz? Maybe we could each have our own dedication. Who are you going to say, Andrew? Jill Biden. Oh. I don't know why she just came to mind. The She's wife. the wife of Joe Biden. I don't know why she came to mind, but I'm just going to roll with it. So I dedicate oh. my corner of this conversation <laughs> to Professor Jill Biden. Um, who would like to go next? Uh, she, what is she a professor of? Is that right? She's a professor? Uh, I don't know. I, I think she may be a, a professor of education. I think she has her degree in the uh, study hmm. of education. History of education, something along those lines. I don't know anything about her. I don't know why she came to mind. It's hard to imagine Biden married to an academic. You know, he seems so man of the people, plus a little bit out of his mind. He does seem out of his mind. You You agree? Yeah. I mean, he seems. Did you see this thing that happened the other day? There was like he was at a rally and there was the CBS reporter who was reporting from like the back of the rally. And as he was reporting, Biden came up behind him and just sort of like tapped him on the shoulder like he Biden walked off the podium, walked back to the report. It's hard to describe. It's like a visual thing, but it was just so weird and kind of sweet. You know, like Biden's like a sort of like a puppy dog. You know, he just goes around licking people. (laughs) And my dad is from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Maybe we should do our next uh, report on Biden. (laughs) Now that he's completely finished, I think. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, he's all strong and north and South Carolina. You know, he's going to tear up the South. He's... um, Hmm. The, you know, if I was going to dedicate it, I would dedicate it to Leibniz, and I dedicate it to a word, which is incendies dung problem, <laughs> the translation of which is decision problem. Yeah, it's the basis of the algorithm. The concept of the algorithm? It's a, it's a, it's a huge, like, sort of other frontier that we don't want to go into. <laughs> we don't? Sparrow. Maybe we should discuss that. Algorithms. I mean, the algorithm is an infinite. That actually would be a great podcast, the algorithm. algorithm. Yeah, nobody, it's like looking into the face of God, you know, like yeah. like the algorithms completely control probably everything we're saying right now. And yet totally. you're not allowed to ever think about them. You know, like if you your mind starts to think about the algorithm, it just goes blank, you know, because the algorithm doesn't want you to see it. You know, right. You have to dedicate. Yeah, exactly. I have this book here that I've been saving just for this podcast or, for, you know, for one of our podcasts. It's called the Verso Book of Descent, you know, Verso, that uh, ah, publisher. Uh, publisher. So I just opened it at random and it turned to John Reed, author of 10 Days That Shook the World, you know, the classic work about the Russian Revolution. Mm. So I will dedicate my portion of this broadcast to John Reed. Thank you. Well, that's all for tonight, folks. And. We are just a few minutes shy of finding out what the Iowa 
Oh, right. Curry return is, which will be an interesting extension of our conversation. Yeah, might mean the political death of Elizabeth Warren. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.